Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So one of my favorite aspects about today's business ecosystem is that there's an emphasis on building a business that's both good for the bottom line and good for the planet. Through the use of technology, we've been able to disrupt industries by creating newfound efficiencies while also finding ways to be more sustainable. And there is no industry that has desperately been looking for this kind of innovation more than the food industry. So that is why I am very excited to announce Alex Garden, the founder and CEO of Zoom as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who haven't had a Zoom pizza, Zoom is redefining how food service providers and consumers alike approach consumption. And the idea is much, much bigger than just automated pizza delivery. With the investments that the Zoom team has made in robotic automation, mobile food kitchens, and predictive AI, Alex and his team have a vision to restructure the food supply chain in a way that's magnitudes better for our environment and for ourselves. So it's really no surprise that Zoom has raised hundreds of millions of dollars at a unicorn valuation from investors like SoftBank's Vision Fund and Kleiner Perkins. Now, Alex himself is a well-respected stalwart here in Silicon Valley, having most recently served as the president of Zynga. Prior to Zynga, Alex served as a GM at Microsoft and was the founder and CEO of Relic Entertainment. So in today's podcast, Alex and I discuss everything from the unit economics of restaurant delivery to saving the world from global climate change. And within our broad conversation, we dive really deep into how Zoom enables a better customer and restaurant experience, all at cheaper prices. Specifically, we get into the nitty gritty of how Alex and his team think about KPIs and metrics and how data-driven decisioning serves as the cornerstone of Zoom's business. So why don't we get started? Hey, Alex, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. So why don't we start with a little bit about your background, just given how successful you've been across multiple businesses, and then we'll parlay that later into talking about Zoom's founding story. Sure. Happy to do that. So I have a bit of a strange background. It's diverse and goes across a bunch of different directions. I started as a video game tester, actually, in 1989, working at Distinctive Software in Vancouver, shortly before they were purchased by Electronic Arts. And that was a summer job for me. And I remember sitting in the office and I was so inspired by, you know, frankly, the young people. I mean, they were older than me, but they were young people who were defining this industry. So I basically left high school and founded my first company, which developed control systems for industrial fabrication robots. And I sold that a year later. And I don't want to overly glorify that story because it was a very small acquisition, but it seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. And it gave me a taste of how being an entrepreneur was vastly preferable to being a high school student. So I left school permanently and I spent about the next eight years writing software for JPL on a contract basis, did some early, early work uh, for NASA and telepresence and visualization systems, 3D rendering engines for Sony, you know, game engines for electronic arts, medical imaging systems, really, frankly, whatever I could get my hands on. And then in 97, I founded a company called Relic Entertainment, which I bootstrapped off my credit card. And when we sold that company in 2004, it was the largest independent game developer in the world. Then uh, in 2004, I started a parking company, which seems like a left turn, but it's not because I love cars and I hate parking. So I thought, why not solve that problem? 
So sold that in 2006. And then in 2000, while I was visiting South Korea for work, I was invited to join the advisory board of what was then a very small company in South Korea called Nexon. And I spent almost eight years with them as an advisor at the last two years of which I was the co-CEO of the company. And among other things around the world, I was involved in helping them stand up their business in North America, which was a tremendously exciting time. So after Nexon and shortly before their IPO and the Nikkei, I left the business. My son had just been born. I took a year off taught myself how to weld, turned my garage into a machine shop, built motorcycles and cars and dragsters. And after a year of that, was recruited by a mentor of mine to go to Microsoft. And, you know, it was kind of a neat uh, posting. They said, look, we have every conceivable resource that one might need to win. And yet we aren't as competitive as we'd like to be. And we think the market is moving faster than we know how to react to. Why don't you come to Microsoft and try and hack the culture? And I thought, what a cool opportunity. I don't know anything about being an executive in a very large company, so I'll go learn that. I started there on my first day. I think I had no office or boss or work visa or charter or computer or access card or office. And this was a pretty broad charter, but I spent five years there. And over that time, took on a series of successively larger roles, including running Xbox Live, where I ran both PM Engineering and the PNL. And I think at the time, I was only one of three people in the company that did that. And it was very, very successful. We grew the business tremendously and then ran the global media business after that. So among other things, got to fix Zune, which if you're old like me, you remember as being you know, kind of a struggling business for Microsoft for a long time. But we had a lot of success turning that around. And then I had this great experience. I was invited to speak on stage at the company meeting the same year that Steve did his tearful goodbye. And we spoke for, I spoke for seven minutes to more than 100,000 employees in the stadium and around the world. And I talked about music and culture. And we got the second highest ratings after Steve's tearful goodbye. And I kind of started thinking to myself at that point, wow, is this mission accomplished? And at the time, I had sort of a front row seat to the Game of Thrones around Steve's departure. And I realized I didn't want to be the CEO of Microsoft. So I started thinking about my next move. And I ended up at Zynga, where I, I was the president. And I helped a mentor of mine again in his work restructuring the business. And that wasn't the right fit for me, that company. So I completed the work that they asked me to do. And then I, I wrote myself out of the picture. But on really good terms, I actually have one of two, actually, of Zynga's board members on the board at Zoom. So it was in that world where I started thinking to myself, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? You know, what do I want it to be about? What do I want to be known for? Is it just about creating more surplus for my family or should I try and give back? And so my wife and I had a long conversation about that and we decided to devote the rest of my professional career to service and to try to improve the lives of the people in the world who've been so generous to us. And that was the core motivation for starting Zoom. Interesting. Okay. So going from there, then, could you talk a little bit about what Zoom is, how it's innovative, and what the market pain points and the rationale were for building the business? Yeah, I can. And it's going to be kind of a funny conversation because everybody thinks that we are the robot pizza company. But in fact, that's not what we are. So Zoom is building a huge range of sustainability tech that's intended to work together as a system that can reboot the way food is grown and distributed all around the world. And we realized early on that we needed to earn our chops as a food company. And also we needed to demonstrate that this technology worked. So we launched Zoom Pizza as our reference customer. And I don't want to trivialize it. I mean, it is our beating heart and it's very important to us and we take it very seriously. 
But Zoom Pizza is the way that we test all of our ideas. And we learn and we listen to customers and we earn the right to serve them safely and to delight them. And behind the scenes, though, we're a much bigger company than that. We have nearly 500 employees. We'll probably double in size in the next 12 to 14 months. We operate in eight offices around the world. And we have a huge range of products that we're responsible for, two of which are getting pretty material commercial scale this year. We just haven't talked very much about it. So it sounds like Zoom Pizza is really just a beachhead for a much, much larger play of redefining how we as consumers consume food and how the food supply chain works in general. But taking a step back just for the audience's sake, could you speak towards how exactly Zoom Pizza is redefining the delivery and the QSR model? Yeah, sure can. So Zoom Pizza isn't unlike a number of our customers And before I answer the question, I want to just give the audience a sense of the landscape here. So for a very long time, outside of pizza, which was an anomaly, the majority of prepared food was consumed in restaurants or was takeout from restaurants. And we can probably all agree on that. And over the last few years, really in the last five years, on a global basis, we've seen an absolute explosion in on-demand food delivery. And what that means is that consumption patterns of consumers are beginning to change in a pretty profound way. Now, you know, everybody understands that we have last mile delivery services. The problem is that the margin structure in that world is changing. So restaurants have a different cost profile than they have historically had. So we're seeing more and more restaurants realize that servicing last mile delivery out of a traditional bricks and mortar restaurant that also supports the overhead of a dining room, that's just getting harder and harder. So in service of that, and it's true in China, it's true in India, it's true in Latin America, and on a growing basis, it's true in the US, restaurants are starting to think about innovative formats. So with that in mind, Zoom Pizza is an example of an innovative format in response to the emerging delivery world. And let me talk about how it works. Food is by and large prepared in large, distant, efficient commissaries. They're very, very safe. They have extremely high standards. They produce exceptionally good products quickly with low waste. And if they're done well, and ours are, they also leverage a lot of automation doing the boring, dangerous, repetitive work so that employees are freed up to do things that they find more rewarding. And more importantly, we can pay them well for that work. Okay, so now we have great jobs for people building very, very high quality food products for consumers and in a sustainable manner. Then Zoom Pizza uses Zoom's incredible trucks to take those food products. We figure out what to put on them and where to put the trucks using predictive algorithms. And then we position those trucks in different ways throughout the day so that they're always as close as they possibly can be to customers. The food is cooked essentially as close to the time that the customer will be eating it as possible. The distances that it has to travel to be delivered are reduced to the minimum amount. And then it's put into packaging, which uses physics to keep the food stable in ways that are you know, several orders of magnitude more effective than the current products in the market today. And all of that is done, obviously, in partnership with our own first-party delivery services, with last-mile delivery services, with customers doing walk-up orders, and many other points in between. So I kind of gave that big, broad overview because what I want to highlight is that it's not about one product, it's about a system. And that's the key to the business that Zoom is building. 
Yep. No, totally agreed there and totally can see that vision. So excited for eventually Zoom to serve all of my meals, whether that be pizza or Asian food. (laughs) (laughs) But with that, you know, as I think about just pizza as this case study, right, there hasn't been innovation in this industry since what Domino's is 30 minute delivery guarantee. (laughs) So really honing in on what you were talking about before about how the unit economics and the model of a brick and mortar restaurant don't work as well as what you're building now. Could you be a little bit more specific in that sense? So I guess break down the mechanics that allow you to not only provide me a fresher and better tasting pizza because it was made literally 30 seconds before, but why exactly Zoom's model allows it to be more cost efficient? Yeah, that's a super question. So I'll speak in some generalizations because as you know, when you're talking about a quote unquote restaurant, that refers to a hundred different variants But speaking broadly, so there's a term you've probably heard called QSR or quick serve restaurant. So the average U.S. QSR operates at about a 12.7% margin inside the four walls. And there's obviously nuances to that because it's a question of whether they're franchised or not and what's the mix there. But just use 12.7% as a working number. Now, that's already a pretty challenging margin business. But when you layer in delivery... And of course, there's a million flavors of delivery too, but you can sort of generalize and say that somewhere between 20 and 30% of the basket is now devoted to the delivery charge. Some of that's passed on to the consumer, some of it's absorbed by the restaurant, depends on the the sector. You're taking what was otherwise a 12.7% order that was managed within the four walls and you're converting it into a neutral or in some cases a negative margin delivery order. And restaurants have been really struggling to try and understand, is that incremental share? Or is it cannibalistic? And unfortunately, the answer is it's both and it depends. There's a lot of variance. But the problem they're having is when it's incremental share, even if it is incremental share, that's fine. But then consumers' behavior patterns and their expectations change. And so there's always this existential risk. And in some cases, it's substantiated that by providing the service, you train customers more and more to dine using the delivery option. And there's always a point at which it cuts into in-store traffic and it begins to be cannibalistic. So now what's going on? So you're losing traffic in that 12.7% margin bracket and you're gaining traffic in the neutral and negative margin bracket. And then layered on top of that, you have a growing cost of occupancy and there's a challenge everyone's feeling, which is the growing cost of labor, which is related to just availability in the labor market. So when you look at the compound effects of the rising cost of occupancy, the rising cost of labor, and then the growing mix of orders from inside the four walls to delivery, restaurants in the QSR sector are are really facing some tough headwinds, certainly in the U.S. market. So that's the current state of affairs. What Zoom does that's different is a couple of things. The first thing is we, as I mentioned earlier, the food production is done in large, distant, efficient commissaries. All right. So just the cost of getting the nearly finished product is lower than it would be in a restaurant by merit of the fact that occupancy is lower, labor is lower, and we control waste more efficiently. So your food cost is slightly lower as well. The second thing we do is we use predictive algorithms to cache what you should be putting on a truck based on cohort, day part, time of the year, weather, other factors. So you lose very few orders due to stockouts, and you lose very little food due to waste. And controlling waste and maximizing order velocity and volume is key. Then We move those trucks as close to customers as they can be, given any number of factors during the day. And that's important because, as you know, 
the shorter a last mile delivery trip is, the more profitable it is both for the LMD as well as for the restaurant. And also, let's not forget that the shorter it is chronologically, the better the food is, right? Because food doesn't do well when it's being delivered. So cool. Then the trucks, they're very, very efficient layouts. There's many unique things about Zoom's kitchen on wheels format that make the labor efficiency of food production significantly higher. And, and we had to do that because, you know, it's a space constrained environment. So if you don't have a super efficient labor and production model, then you can't get enough people on the truck just by merit of the size of them to make them effective. So we had to get an order of magnitude more efficient than a standard kitchen. So we've done that. And then there's a number of other things that, that have to do with two-sided marketplace and special deals with location-based services and all sorts of other things. But basically, the punchline is this. And this is what we tell our restaurant partners when they come to talk to us. We say, listen, I understand as well as I can, not as well as you do, some of the challenges you're facing in the market today and the increase in complexity of serving guests in a delivery-forward world. And let me share with you the core value premise of our company, which is that if you adopt Zoom's technology, you'll make more money. And they say, well, that sounds great. They say, how? We say, well, here are five examples of things that we do that can help you accomplish that. And then they get excited because these are things they need today. And we say, but that's not all. We also have the best compostable, sustainable, highest performance, most beautiful packaging in the world. And it's the same price or less as plastics. And they say, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You say, yeah, I know. Isn't that cool? And in the future, here's where we're going with our investment roadmap. And here's additional services we could offer you that will just plug right in. And they say, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard before. That's kind of the growth engine of our business right now. Interesting. So then if I'm interpreting what you mean by restaurant partner correctly, in my mind, the story that I'm telling myself is as opposed to Zoom figuring out the recipe for pizza, for pasta, for every single SKU out there, you're instead going to more or less provide the underlying supply chain and automation capabilities of Zoom as an outsource component for your restaurant partners. Let's say, I don't know, a Popeye's or a KFC or something like that. Yeah, that's precisely right, John. And it's not just the big chains. We work with small emerging brands. We work with regional players. We work with big national, in some cases, big global chains. And we provide logistic services to them. Uh, we provide automation services, appliances, packaging, data services, in some cases, AI and predictive models. And then we also work with some of the largest providers of food in the B2B space on a global basis. And in their case, they have other things that they're interested in that we do. But as I said, it's a system. We're going after a reboot of the global food and production system. And if you want to say that and have it be credible, you need to address the challenges of the local civic market, as well as the challenges of the national and in some cases, the global market. That makes a ton of sense. And that really gets me excited because I think when people think about innovation within the context of food, they really only think about it from an ingredients perspective as opposed to a process perspective, which I think is what one thing is really exciting about Zoom, right? It's not just about you know creating a healthier version of X or Y. It's more so about creating a healthier version for the entire planet and all stakeholders in all forms as opposed to just the ingredients yeah, you know, it's funny, when we travel around, I'll just share an anecdote with you really quickly. And it just happened the other day in Germany, I was with one of the largest food conglomerates in Europe, and I was speaking to their board of directors. And they said, listen, we love our customers. We really, really care. And I believe them. It's true. And we have a responsibility to our customers, to our families, 
to invest in ways that make the production of food more sustainable. And we have a sustainability program. But if I'm being honest with you, the goals are modest. And we're even having trouble meeting those modest goals. And it's not because we don't care. It's because we're part of a system. We're captives in that system. We don't control the inputs as well as we'd like to. We don't control the connection to the outputs as well as we could. And we have shareholders that we're responsible for. So we're part of a logistic, technical, economic system, and we don't know how to change the outcome. And so we said to them, well, what we do is we're rebooting that system and providing an entirely new set of alternatives. And if you adopt them, it's going to be the growth engine for your business economically for the next 25 to 30 years. And good news, the byproduct is if you adopt our services, you're automatically contributing to the sustainability agenda. So what I'm thinking about right now is how an Italian grandmother or a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America would feel about a purely scientific and mechanical approach to cooking food, right? I mean, there's something to be said of cooking with intimacy and love. So as you have systematized the process of preparing food, how have you tested whether your recipes are the best out there? Well, the first thing that's true, regardless of where you go, and this is true if you go to you know, a Nestle R&D facility in Solon, Ohio, or if you go to Calabria, the first thing is food is love everywhere. Because I'll just tell you right now, consumers are unrelenting in their assessment of your food. If they don't think it's delicious and craveable, they will not eat it again. It doesn't matter who you are. That's just a fact. Now, there's different versions of what that means to people, but it's just universally true. Now, the second thing I'll tell you is if you go and have a handmade pasta in your favorite Italian city, and I'm sure you've done this, if you've ever made pasta before, pasta is scientific. If you have too much of one thing or not enough in another thing, it's not pasta, it's just a mess. So all food is based on formulas and recipes and other things. Now, I feel like you might have been suggesting that if food is engineered from things that are not food, then that's bad. And frankly, I agree with you. But it's important to point out that many of the reasons why food is engineered with things that are not food is because they're trying to work around limitations of the supply chain that they're captive in. And if that's what you meant, then I love it as a segue because it's an opportunity for me to reinforce that what we're doing at Zoom is we're offering new supply chain solutions, which if I can use Zoom Pizza as an example, when you move the food closer to the customer and you dramatically shorten the time that it needs to be stable for post-delivery, then you need fewer compromises in the raw ingredients. You can make a fresher product. Right. And that's one of hundreds of examples across our business in ways that we use, as I said, prediction as well as logistics to modify the consequences of the length of the supply chain. So they require fewer compromises that affect consumers. Uh, that really helped to click for me there, because as I was thinking about originally how you were revolutionizing the supply chain, it was solely, I guess you would call it the bottom half of the funnel. It's like once the food has been delivered into the restaurant's doors, but now it's clicking for me that now that you can deliver just in time, more or less, and create just in time, you get to pull that bell pepper off the stem, let's say a day in advance as opposed to two weeks in advance, or you can source locally as opposed to sourcing from large conglomerates that require a ton of pesticides at scale. Is that thinking about it correctly? Yeah, all the things that you said are in scope. And actually, that's just a subset of it, but you're certainly on the right track. Awesome. That's great. So then, as I mentioned to you before we started the episode here, I had a Zoom pizza 
last week. It was a Pied Pepper, which I got because the name is hilarious. <laughs> well, you know, they, they actually put us on the show in season two. And of course, you know, we were quite an early company at the time and I'm a big fan of the show. We freaked out. It was awesome. <laughs> and so we named that pizza in honor of our appearance. That's great. And I think the idea of Zoom and how large of an idea it is, is very fit for the show itself. So I'm glad you guys got the showcase. <laughs> we hope to avoid being any of the archetypes, but yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Hopefully not Gavin. So going back to what we were talking about with the recipes and making sure that something tastes good, it was actually a really great pizza. No DiGiorno's, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> it was really good because it seems like you're a very data-driven person. How do you go about iterating on customer taste preferences? I mean, how do you think about consumers' reactions? How do you use data to test whether or not this is the best pizza ever? Well, look, I mean, we have to go back to what you said earlier, food is love. And so I don't know if you can instrument and measure love because it starts with something intangible, right? People have spent the last 10,000 years trying to you know, schematize it. And I don't think they've had any success. So any great recipe that I know of starts with an inspiration from a culinary professional, a chef, somebody who cares very much about the emotional experience people have when they eat their food. It always starts there and our starts there too. It's hard to instrument that. But what you can do is you can put that in front of customers and you can ask them, how do you feel about this? That's a complicated question in a delivery forward world because you have to think, all right, maybe we got the recipe right, but maybe it doesn't dwell properly in the packaging because it has more moisture escaping than we thought it would. Or maybe it doesn't last for some unexpected reason outside of a 26.2 minute window. And because we are now increasing our mix shift from first party to third party delivery because we're running a particular test and our dwell went up because we had a driver availability issue that we went to 27 minutes and now we're getting negative sensory results. So you really do have to be structured and you have to understand all of the steps that can contribute to CSAT and DSAT. And then you have to back out control problems like was your customer support agent grumpy on the phone with a customer or other things. And in that respect, being data focused and really understanding your schema is extremely important. So what we try to do is marry the art of food is love with the science of understanding all the variables that contribute to the quality of a product. And then if I may, I just have to say one more thing that's really important. Overlaid on top of those things and in many ways paramount to them is safety. We never, under any circumstances, will make a choice that puts a customer or their families or our employees at risk, period. And if that comes at the expense of profits, then so be it. Uh, that's a compromise we'll never make. That's great to hear. And I'm glad you mentioned CSAT and some other metrics there. CSAT standing for customer satisfaction. Yeah. I'm curious, what are some of the other KPIs or metrics you track to gauge the health of the business? Well, how long do you have? Because I can spout <laughs> TLAs for the next hour and a half. But we look at CSAT, NPS, in our call center operations, we look at FCR, HT. We look at dwell time. We look at driver availability time. We look at stepwise breakdown of exactly how long each step in the production process takes. We look at humidity levels and you know, pH balance of water going into our recipes and temperature and digital metering and honestly, average reflective ambient temperature coming off the stone conveyor deck links in our ovens in the kitchen. And like, honest to God, like it, people think, oh, how hard can a pizza be? The amount of science and rigor and discipline involved in making one pizza is impressive. 
the amount of rigor and discipline that needs to go into making a thousand pizzas that are as good as the first one is mind-boggling. I had no idea how complicated it was. Now, we do it as a business today after four years of painstaking research and learning. And I'll use that as an opportunity to highlight what I think is probably the most important thing about Zoom. We're not a tech company, right? We're a food company that happens to use technology. We're not a tech company hacking food. And I think if I hear one thing from our customers, of all other things, they say, listen, it's refreshing to talk to a company who's meeting us where we are. You're a food company, we're a food company, we ordered your pizza, we really enjoyed the experience. And we've been to your kitchens and we've seen how well they're run and we trust you. And we know that you're going to keep our customers safe as well. And that's the beginning of a great conversation. And I think there's too many examples today of people who have a good instinct. They have an intuition and they want to capitalize on that intuition by participating in the food business, but they haven't taken the time to understand what it means to be a food company. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I love that keen focus on safety of customer love in all forms and tying that into this vision that you have for completely revolutionizing the food supply chain, which I think leads really well into my next question, which is around vision, specifically SoftBank Vision Fund. Mm -hmm. So a couple of months back, you guys took, what was it, $375 million from SoftBank at above a $2 billion valuation. I think oftentimes when our founders face the SoftBank meeting and SoftBank says, you know, we'd like to provide you with X amount of capital, and it's a very large sum, like let's say $375 million, how do you even go about thinking about allocating that amount of capital? Well, so a couple of things I, I want to clear up first. So first of all, we've been tremendously fortunate in the support we've received from investors. The investment that SoftBank made was the latest in what has been always been a very long and generous list of investments. And, you know, we've never announced financing and we haven't talked about it. And mainly the reason for that is that's not the business that we're in, right? And I think in Silicon Valley too often people get caught up in this, the romance of, you know, we raised this much money or we're valued at that much money. At the end of the day, we have a fiduciary and we take it seriously, but that's not our business. We're in the business of serving customers and delighting them and keeping them safe. And so we tend to take to downplay things like that. So I, I want to just highlight that. In total, we've raised quite a bit more than the number that you reported. But here's the other thing I'd like to say is that that valuation number is actually incorrect. The number which we have never reported as well, what our valuation is, but it's not the number that you said. It's slightly lower. I'm saying that because there's one of the downsides to keeping those numbers close to the vest is they're often misreported. And I just don't, I don't want to take credit for things that we haven't accomplished. So anyway, with all of that in mind, we took the same approach to building a relationship with SoftBank that we have with every investor in our company, which is we asked ourselves, are our interests and values aligned? Are we trying to accomplish the same things? Can we support each other? Because it's not a one-way street. And do we trust you? And I would say clearly in all four of those evaluation criteria, SoftBank was a good partner for us to choose and has been a tremendous partner for us since the time of the financing and has played a, a really an instrumental role in helping accelerate the growth of our company, both in the US and around the world. So then maybe a better way to phrase that question is, regardless of where you've raised your capital, what are you currently investing in? Yeah, gosh, I mean, a lot of different things. Let me give you one example. As you know, we're weaving this sustainability fabric 
across the food industry globally. And there's a lot of different elements to that. One that I'm really particularly proud of is our packaging business. Sometimes people ask me, why are you in that business? But if you're in the food business, everybody understands how important packaging is. So here's a crazy fact. Zoom today is the only company in the world that can produce beautiful, complex, molded fiber products that are completely compostable, that have the performance characteristics of single-use plastics at or below the price of single-use plastics when we're at scale. No other company can do it. And the reason that's true is because we started producing the Zoom Pizza Pod and we won DuPont's Package of the Year Award for it. And we thought, well, how clever are we? Let's go to industry and license this. And we found that nobody was able to produce it at a price that was competitive to allow it to scale. So being a curious person, I started digging into that and I discovered that among many other reasons, one of the reasons that's not possible is that no machines existed on earth which could do that. So we partnered with a company initially and then we bought that company. And now we have a new technology, which we call the FMC technology, which is the most sophisticated, fastest manufacturing technology for molded fiber products in the world. That's already true. And it's actually getting faster, if you can believe it. So we think that we're about three times faster than the fastest technology on earth today. And by the end of this year, we'll be about to seven and a half times faster. So it's pretty exciting. And we're now building factories across the U.S., first party, to supply packaging at very, very large numbers into the global industry, as well as now in India and uh, soon to be in Asia. So we're on a mission right now to replace a billion units of single-use plastic by the end of 2020 from landfills, and that's just the beginning for us. That's really awesome to hear. And I will put up an image of the box in the show notes just because if you haven't seen or felt the Zoom packaging before, it's really a complete 180 from the conventional cardboard pizza box. So all this talk, though, about packaging and manufacturing has made me curious about how you've approached some of these disciplines, just given how far away they are from what I would think of your career as a primarily software focused career. So you're dealing with the nitty gritties of a supply chain, not only with food and packaging, but also with building and designing hardware, which are all extremely difficult technical problems separate from a conventional software engineering perspective. So could you share a few lessons learned there? Yeah, well, I mean, fortunately, I'm not burdened by having a degree that tells me what I'm good at. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I've, I'm a very curious person. And I'm also somebody who believes that if you apply yourself, you can accomplish just about anything. So I've taken the time over the years to become proficient as an SE, a Mac EE, an EE. And I've also really enjoyed learning about how to run businesses, both as a coach to executives as well as to an executive myself. I've learned about public and private companies, national, multinational, enterprise, consumer, hardware, software services. And I recently, a couple of years ago, joined a venture capital firm as well. So I'm learning about the finance side of things. And I, I like to think, and I think it's true, that continuing to expose myself to new challenges has improved my performance, not just in that new area, but of course across the board. Uh, because I try to keep all of those learnings in mind. And then I guess on top of all of those things, and perhaps the most important part of it overlaid in that learning is this idea that as a leader, I need to spend the rest of my life in service of the people that I'm responsible for. So I'm always thinking about the technical knowledge, but I'm putting it against a leadership backdrop and asking myself, how can I make the people that I'm responsible for more successful? That's wonderful. And I think that 
ability to draw patterns across interdisciplinary fields sets us up well for the last part of the podcast, which centers around the title, Pattern Recognition. Are there any consistent patterns or themes you see across successful food service businesses? That's a good question. I'm curious how you would define a successful consumer food business. Yeah, this one's tough because Zoom is just kind of in a category of its own. So, yeah, it's funny. People keep asking me who our competitors are. And I say, look, I don't mean to be flippant, but we don't have any competitors. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm struggling here to even think about the right category for you to speak towards. You know, so John Doerr led our B round. And, and at the time, he was a, was then and continues to be a, a great mentor and advisor. And, and he told me that he made the investment because he felt that Zoom and our ambition, while, you know, in many ways, almost impossibly large, reminded him a lot of the early days at Amazon, because as you know, he was the first non-angel investor into Amazon. And he said, you know, Jeff had what was then considered to be an impossibly large ambition and seems to have worked out for him. So we tend to think that if there is a company who represents the scale and ambition of what we're trying to accomplish, it's Amazon. In our case, our motivation's a little different. You know, they're growing a business because they want to be this incredibly customer-focused store where anyone in the world can buy anything anytime. We have a slightly different goal, which is to look working through the lens of food, engineer safety and security for people around the world through the lens of, you know, water safety and security, food safety and security, climate safety and security, and then ultimately as a result of those things, geopolitical safety and security. And I think if you were to say that differently, if you say, you know, when you know your kids are safe and fed, the idea of democracy seems a lot more appealing. So I think in North America, we sometimes forget that in other markets around the world, people are in a much less safe position. And it's kind of imperative on us to take some of the surplus that we enjoy here and invest it to improve the safety and security of the people in parts of the world that aren't as fortunate. I think it's part of our responsibility. So that's really what Zoom does. And, and in that respect, we don't really have competitors, but we do have Amazon as an idea of what our company looks like as it grows from the scale and complexity standpoint. So that's maybe not the answer you were looking for, because I know we're trying to draw some comparisons. But I think if you look at examples of what people would classically characterize as successful food businesses, I think it really depends on whether you're talking about B2B or B2C, because they're, they're very different. So if you can give me a little bit more dimension, I'm happy to try and answer your question. Well, before we pick B2B or B2C, I just want to touch on a parallel that I see between Zoom and Amazon that gets me really excited, where I think about how Amazon got really good at building cloud infrastructure internally and ultimately spun out that expertise as Amazon Web Services, which today is now a 30 billion revenue business. And it looks like there's a pretty clear parallel with what you guys are doing with packaging, where at first you guys got really good at making cost-efficient better for the world packaging for your own use case. And now you're selling that to the market. So I really, really like that parallel. Great. We do too. Thanks. For, I'm glad you see it that way. <laughs> That's great. So then diving back in, maybe let's talk about some consistent patterns on the B2C end. Yeah. Someone said to me once, the only thing that B2C food companies care about is the following. Do you lower my expenses or do you increase my revenue? And it's not that they don't care about serving guests safely or delighting them, but those things are table stakes, right? If you don't do those things, you're immediately out of business. So let's not get wrapped around the axle on what you have to do, 
let's talk about what you can do. And what you can do is you can either increase revenue or decrease costs. So I would argue that if you were to go and look at a B2C cohort segmentation of restaurants, you can probably build 10 or 15 cohorts in any dimension you choose to slice them along. And if you were to do an ordinal ranking of participants in that cohort, you would end up seeing that those at the top are the ones who do the best job at reducing expenses and increasing revenue. So I would argue first that well-run food companies understand their market and their consumer and what the needs of their consumer are first. Then they are process-driven and they have a curious mind and they question their assumptions and they look for ways to reduce expenses and increase revenue. Awesome. And then in your own personal life, are there any mental models or patterns that you follow in your own decision-making? Well, I'm sure that's there are. I'm not sure how effective I will be at describing them, but I, <laughs> I think that the easiest way that I can explain my process. So I think pattern recognition actually is my superpower. And the way that it works for me, and it's not very easy to articulate, but I try to take in as much data as possible. And you know, people who I work with know that I read essentially all the time periodicals, books, articles, reference material, and anything I can get my hands on in any dimension. When I'm not reading, I'm listening to it on, on the internet. I'm scrolling through search results on Google. I'm reading reports internally. I'm sitting in meetings. I'm just absorbing the maximum volume of data that I can. It's like Neo learning Kung Fu in the Matrix. And then without putting any specific pressure on it, the easiest way I can explain it to you or anyone else is that I have a shape, like a point cloud, if you will, that's very, very large in my mind. And it's not that I see it so much as that I feel it. I can actually physically feel it. And what ends up happening is I start to see data clustering, right? All of this disparate, what seemingly unrelated data, everything from like commodity future hedging prices of sugarcane bagasse in the Thailand market through to like the permafrost melting rate in Eastern Siberia. Like, honestly, like, I'm not joking. It's that diverse, like all sorts of crazy things. And I actually start to feel the points where there is convergence of data. And I've learned over the years to be very curious about those convergence points. And I dive into them in extreme depth. And, you know, sometimes they don't lead anywhere, but sometimes they lead to these absolutely magical insights that we build businesses around. That's really wonderful and sounds like a human superpower that you have. So I think we'll all aspire to that. But what's a book you've recently read and how has it changed your perspective? Well, I'm going to use this as a shameless plug for my duty to the universe. So <laughs> I'd encourage anybody who wants to spend some time reading something to go and dive into two things. The first one is the last United Nations report on climate change. And the second is the latest World Economic Forum data. If you are someone who cares about anyone in your life, if you love anyone, you owe it to them to expose yourself to that information. I'm assuming people listening to your podcast are either entrepreneurs or they're around entrepreneurs. And people with that exposure now are the only hope we have. They have to get informed and they have to start inventing solutions that are going to save the world from itself because we don't have very much time left. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that hit hard and I'll make sure to post a link to both of those reads in the show notes because I think those are really critical for us all to take the time and, and reflect on. So thank you so much for sharing that. Last question here, Alex, and a little bit more lighthearted. What is your favorite non-Zoom pizza? 
Oh, I mean, so no problem. There's a <laughs> shop in uh, in Soma called Una Pizza Neapolitana. Yes. And uh, <laughs> that place is ridiculous. So it's only open a few hours a day. They open when they want to. Essentially, they close when they run out of pizza. It's a husband and wife team who operate it. You wait forever. They don't take reservations. I mean, it's really just a really charming place. The food will boggle your mind. Now, I'm sure somewhere in the world, someone will tell me there's a better pizza. But if you're in San Francisco and you want to go and have your mind blown, then go to Una Pizza Neapolitana. That's awesome. Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining the pod. It's been a total blast to have you on. Yeah, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for the time. Once again, a big thank you to Alex for joining us today. I highly, highly encourage you to check out the UN report on global climate change that Alex mentioned which I have also included in the show notes on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com. Additionally, if you're ever craving the perfect delivery pizza, make sure to order from Zoom. And as always, this podcast is ad-free because I despise podcast ads. So if you enjoy the show, I'd love if you could help support us with a two-second rating and review. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heasy or on Instagram at John G. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.